You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We've seen a lot about um, our need to love others, to serve others, to care for others, to provide for others when injustices are happening, um, a call to step in and, and to handle those, to rebuke those, to address those, um, a lot of discussion about just honesty in our dealings with each other, uh, even from like a financial standpoint. Uh, we've seen uh, both the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah being rebuked for some of their mishandlings and dealings from a business standpoint. We're going to see that again today. Um, we've seen that theme of day of the Lord running through some of these different books where God's judgment comes upon the evil. Uh, but day of the Lord should also be understood from the flip side that it's also God coming to save and restore the righteous, to take care of them, to protect them, right? And so we've seen that. Uh, We saw a picture of God's love through Hosea, uh, the unfaithfulness of the bride, the faithfulness of Hosea, picturing uh, the faithfulness of God towards us despite our unfaithfulness. We've seen Joel um, and just these uh, small warning signs, these small days of the Lord that are meant to point to this greater day of the Lord, meant to get our attention, meant to uh, change our actions and our behaviors and our attitudes. And Joel uses that towards um, the people that he's writing to, right? And says that, look, this locust plague has come, this dark army's coming, more is to come. Um, and, and so there's a call to repentance there, right? There's the picture we saw in Amos that as God's image bears were to mirror his character um, by upholding what is right um, when evil creeps in, taking action to make things right once again. And that picture of righteousness and justice uh, that's seen in that book. Then we saw Jonah, that God doesn't just care about Israel, that salvation's not just for Israel, it's for all the nations, right? And so Jonah was an individual who understood God's mercy, understood his, um, his willingness to relent from his anger, um, but wasn't willing to communicate that to other people, wanted to claim it for himself, didn't want to uh, communicate it to others. And we said that we're called to communicate God's compassion and mercy, even to the worst sinners, because if they choose to repent, God will save them. And then last week we saw Obadiah, uh, that God does have enemies and he deals with his enemies. And we saw day of the Lord against Edom and how God uh, was fiercely opposed to them in their pride, that instead of helping Israel, they hurt Israel. Instead of helping Israel, they remained silent when Israel was in need, right? And so we talked about how we as followers of God should not be violent towards other people, nor should we be silent when other people are being treated violently. And we said that lest we mistakenly think that violence is strictly talking about a physical sense, that oftentimes we are very violent towards others in the way that we uh, talk about them, uh, treat others behind their back. Um, And so we need to be very careful that we're not um, guilty of what Edom was guilty of and just simply pass over it thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. All right, so that brings us to um, our study in Micah today. Um, seven chapters in Micah. We're going to give you a quick overview of all of that. And then, like I said, we're going to really camp out a little bit longer in chapter six and seven today with our actual um, outline and application points today. Okay. So from a summary sentence standpoint, because God cannot be bribed to avoid judgment, we must respond in the ways that he requires by humbling ourselves before him, while seeking to do right towards others with a heart of kindness and mercy. Because God cannot be bribed to avoid judgment, we must respond in the ways that he requires by humbling ourselves before him while seeking to do right towards others with a heart of kindness and mercy. For our kids, God desires that we serve him by treating others right and forgiving them when they don't treat us right. What we're gonna see today is that 
both in the northern and the southern kingdoms. And uh, Micah specifically identifies Samaria and Jerusalem, the capitals of these kingdoms. Um, the culture, the, the environment that was set up there. We're going to look at that today in some of the different passages in Micah. But ultimately, that environment was one where the rich were ruling and the poor were oppressed. Um, and this is a similar time frame with Isaiah, Hosea, Amos. These are other prophets that are ministering during this time. So there's some overlap in some of the messages that we see from Hosea and Amos with what we're going to see in Micah today. Um, but some some different nuances there that we're going to highlight, I think, as well. But what you have there is a culture and an environment where leadership can be bought. You can manipulate the situation if you have enough money, and justice becomes something that you pay for versus it being something that stands in light of truth being right or wrong. Um, and so Micah addresses that and ties it into the fact that, hey, you've been treating judges and prophets and teachers with this type of mindset that I can pay to get what I want, he's very clear that God can't be dealt with that way. He doesn't come saying that his wrath is going to be poured out and then we find some type of uh, atonement uh, price to pay uh, to get his wrath off of us because we're going to see that even the greatest price that could be paid by us is really not enough to satisfy his wrath, that it falls, uh, it falls short of his glory. Um, and so God can't be bought off. Instead, God gives them clear direction, clear indication, as he does throughout Scripture, um, that it's not sacrifices that he ultimately desires, that it's repentance and heart change and action that he's looking for. And that's only possible through the, the Holy Spirit coming in and dwelling us once we've humbled ourselves and repented and submitted to his authority. Okay, so we're going to see that today through the book of Micah. Uh, we're going to understand what God wants from us. Um, probably all of us have worked for different employers, different bosses, where maybe we weren't always sure where we stood with that individual. Maybe we weren't always sure if we were doing the job that was required of us. Weren't really sure if we were measuring up to the standards that were given to us. Um, we probably all had situations like that where you kind of operate day in and day out working this job, but you're not really sure, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Uh, job descriptions are huge in the workplace because that's kind of the document that we try to measure ourselves against to know if we are doing our job correctly, right? We've got a couple of situations at Trinity right now where the job descriptions are very fluid, um, and so there's a lot of flexibility right now of just trying to figure out what these individuals do and how to hold them to certain standards because the job description is still being developed. Whereas most of the employees at Trinity, we have job descriptions. We know exactly what the expectations are. And those, employer, those employees know exactly what expectations they're being held to as well. It's always nice to have that clarity to know this is what the person that I answer to expects of me. And we get that from the book of Micah. Uh, one of the most famous passages in his, um, in his short book here uh, would be found in Micah chapter 6, uh, verse 8, where we find kind of what God requires of us. And it's uh, a, certainly a similar theme, similar message that we see in some other passages in Scripture. Um, that, that running theme of what he desires is justice, he desires mercy, he desires humility. Um, and we'll see that uh, during our time together today. All right, so let's jump in real quick uh, and get started. Again, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. So he's living uh, kind of in that 8th century BC time frame. He lives in the southern kingdom. Uh, the kings during his lifetime would have been, uh, from the Judah standpoint, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
Uh, We said that he comes warning Samaria and Jerusalem, so he's warning both sides of uh, God's people, that Assyria and Babylon are coming to bring judgment upon them uh, for their actions. And he's going to be very specific about the actions that they're being judged for. And he's very clear that this isn't just his opinion or perspective, that this comes directly from God. If you have your Bibles, look to Micah chapter 3. Not that we have to question ever if, if God's word is authoritative and whether it's man's opinion or God's divine revelation, but Micah makes it clear to us that he understood at least uh, that what he was writing was authoritative. He understood that what was being communicated was not simply coming from him and his words, but directly from God. So in Micah chapter 3, verse 8, it says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. All right, so this is an authoritative word to us this morning. Um, It's a word that even though it was written thousands of years ago, the message still rings true today, that what God required of the people back then is what he requires of us today as well. Chapter one and two, there's a lot of accusations and warnings. And again, I wanna give you kind of a foundation so that you could potentially go and read through this book this week and glean more than what we will have time to cover this morning. Chapters one and two, accusations and warnings. It begins with Micah kind of recreating a similar scene to what you would find maybe at the foot of Mount Sinai when God was making his covenant with his people. It's a uh, scary, threatening type scene. Um, It says in verse two of chapter one, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel." What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them into the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. It goes on just this accusation and warning about their behavior and what is to come upon them. Uh, God is moving. God is acting. Uh, He is stepping into human history to do this, right? That this day of the Lord picture, he is coming to deal with with evil. He's tolerated their rebellion maybe for up to 500 years, which if you think about that, that's longer than the time they spent in Egypt under the slavery of the Egyptians, right? God is very slow to anger. Uh, He's been clear about communicating that through the minor prophets. And again, knowing that time frame, he is bringing judgment upon them, but he's been very tolerant over the years, giving them opportunity to repent. Uh, In these two chapters, he addresses the leaders who have become wealthy through theft and greedy methods. He even makes reference to Ahab and Naboth and the uh, inappropriate means that he went about to gain that vineyard for himself. Just a lot of corruption in the leadership and how they're dealing with the people. Um, there's, there's a lot of covetousness in the hearts of the people. If you flip into chapter two, uh, at the beginning of that chapter, verse one, it says, "'Woe to those who devise wickedness "'and work evil on their beds. "'When the morning dawns, they perform it. 
because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster for which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it uh, removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You skip down to verse 11. It says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. It's a It's an indictment against them about the type of preacher, type of prophet they're looking for. They're looking for one who will say the things that they want to hear, right? He's saying, like, what what if you were to show up and hear a sermon about how much drink you should have, right? He says, this is the type of of prophet that these people want. Um, Not one who comes necessarily proclaiming truth, but one who comes saying what the people want to hear. And then in verses uh, 12 and 13, as is consistent with all these minor prophets, there's, there's warnings and accusations and judgments, but it's always coupled with this hope of restoration, that this is not God's final dealings with his people. Look what it says. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out about it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord at their hand. And so God does talk about regathering the remnant of Israel and functioning like a shepherd, a good shepherd for them, uh, which should ring true for us as we've seen uh, Jesus talking about fulfilling this type of role uh, for God's people, right? That, that good shepherd picture uh, that he left with his disciples. Um, we move into chapter three and four. You continue to see the injustice of the leaders uh, running through this land is bribery, people bending justice, to favor the wealthy, the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And God is coming to deal with that. In chapter 3, verse 4, God tells them what's going to happen because of their sin. It says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. He's going to cut off his presence from his people for a time due to their sin, but he's going to eventually reestablish it. And he's going to do so in Jerusalem for all nations. In chapter four, verse one, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, not for this particular generation that he's dealing with, but long-term, God is not done dealing with Israel. He's done dealing with Edom, right? We saw that Edom's demise would be final, that there's not these promises that continue for Edom, but they do for God's people. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You see in verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out far, or go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. 
There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so throughout this um, book, Micah talks about Assyria coming, talks about Babylon coming, says that like these things aren't going to change. This punishment is coming, particularly upon this generation. But long term, long term, there's hope. Long term, there's a remnant that, we were, that will be preserved. God will honor his promises. Now, we've talked a little bit already about the bribery and the, 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 the misuse of finances and money and justice within this um, land. Particularly, Micah is highlighting issues related to how the wealthy are dealing with the poor and how they're seizing control of the land. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the way God had kind of set things up back in Leviticus and Numbers, rescues the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've become a great nation. They weren't a great nation when they went into Egypt 400 years before, right? They were, they were a big family. They multiplied greatly over the course of those hundreds of years. They come out, and now they're a nation, but they don't have any foundational documents. They don't have any ways of how to function as a, as a nation, right? And so all they know is what these other nations do. And so God basically gives the law, and we think in terms of do this, don't do this, but it was basically their, their constitution in some ways, right? Their bill of rights. This is, this is how we will function as a nation. Um, and if you really begin to study it, and maybe down the road we'll get a chance to, to do that together as a church and, and go through some of those um, those early books in the Old Testament together, you look at some of that and you really get to see God's heart for the poor. You really get to see God's heart for the unfortunate um, and how he had set up their nation to always make sure that it cared for those people. And what Israel has done here is they've neglected the poor. They've neglected the things that God put in place to care for the poor, and therefore the poor remain poor and they remain oppressed. Let me show you what this looks like in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, and we will start reading in verse 23. The land shall not be sold in uh, perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. So, so God just reestablishes the fact that, okay, this land didn't belong to you before. It belongs to me. I'm gifting it to you, but it's still mine. Like you're basically leasing it from me, okay? Um, let's just don't forget who really controls this land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the, in the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So what you would have had here is a picture of debts being forgiven, property being returned. It never kept somebody in this state of poverty forever. It, it was meant to, to be an opportunity for redemption, for people to be able to get back on their feet. And Israel was neglecting this. In Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel 
shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to the one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The poor were not supposed to stay in this state. They were supposed to be able to get out of this state. And Israel was neglecting it because they were covetous, because they were greedy, because they were thieves. They were hanging on to this stuff when it should have been gifted back. When you move into chapter 5, you begin to see more hope, uh, hope of a Messiah that is to come to fix all of this. Um, So this idea of uh, a remnant being saved, a remnant being led properly, um, we begin to see that picture in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is a passage that sometimes we read at Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This promise of the Messiah coming here, it's quoted in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. That the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. It's why when the wise men show up and they begin to question, you know, where is he who's born king of the Jews? The wise men kind of come forth and say, look, it seems like we should be looking in Bethlehem because that's where the prophet said for us to look. We see in chapter 5 through 7 that final justice is coming. He's going to cut off all of their false senses of security, right? All these things that they've set up, particularly the works of their hands, right? And it's, 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 a, it's a, an indictment against Israel for not trusting God and instead entrusting themselves to the things of this world. Look what it says in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. These were things that were constantly a stumbling block for Israel that they would trust in their armies like the other nations did versus trusting in God. He says, I'm going to cut off all this stuff from you. I'll cut off the cities of your land, throw down all your strongholds. I'll cut off sorceries from your hand. You shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I'll cut off your carved images, your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. Right? We look at all that and we're like, that's not me. 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 Then that last part, it's like, that could be me. Right? While, while these other things feel very ancient and non-cultural to us, we do live in a society where we're prone to bow down to the work of our hands, right? The accomplishments that we have in the workplace, the things that that allows us to purchase and to uh, provide for our families. If we're not careful, we begin to entrust ourselves to the good things that God has given us versus the God who has given us those things. It's what we saw last week, right? Edom had become very prideful in the works of their hands. Look at this place we've developed. Look where we, look where we chose to develop it. We chose to develop ourselves in the high places where the hill country, where we can't be attacked. They're very prideful about the works of their hands. God says, I'm going to devastate the works of your hands because of your pride. The people are hearing this warning. They're hearing this challenge. Micah anticipates their response, and we see that in chapter 6. In verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What do you see here? You see the people operating like they've always operated when they needed to get out of jail. Right? Whenever trouble has come, who do we need to buy off? 
What do we need to pay? What's the price for this, right? Do I need to bring you some calves? Do I need to bring you some rams? Do I need to bring you tons of oil? And you see this stair step of of moving upward in value of these sacrifices all the way to the point of, do I need to give you my firstborn? Think about the illustration there that, one, it's, it's not uncommon in this society because they're prone to child sacrifice, right? So again, a foreign concept for us. But to even see one offer their firstborn to atone for their sins, and God says, that's not enough, right? Our firstborn doesn't count. His firstborn does, right? Our firstborn's not perfect, right? Our first child's not perfect, nor is our second child, nor is our third child. Um, ain't none of our children that are they're anywhere close to perfect, right? Um, they can't be offered for our sins. But the mindset here is that people want to know, what do we do to buy off? What do we do to earn uh, the ability to have justice not fall upon us? Because that's how they have been operating as a society. And God says that's not going to work. Um, there is hope for God's forgiveness that we see um, in chapter 7. It's his character that the author here, Micah, draws upon, that even though God's bringing judgment, and rightfully so, because if God is a God who values justice, he has to respond to the evil. He has to respond to the wicked. But we also see it coupled with his forgiveness. Look what it says in chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. We see this hope for God's forgiveness that not only is it his character that can be relied upon, it's also his promises, right? that his mercy is more powerful than our evil, right? He doesn't retain his anger forever. He is steadfast in his love. He will have compassion on us. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Why? Because he's promised that. He promised it to Jacob, promised it to Abraham, promised it to the forefathers. He said, I made a covenant and I'll keep it. I'll keep it. And that's great hope for us today that God keeps his promises. So, Judgment's coming. He'll confront and judge evil amongst his people. But he's also bringing this hope as well. God's covenant love and promises are more powerful than the human evil. More powerful. All right? Um, so let's, let's look again real quick at the evil environment that had been created, and then we're going to see what is the appropriate response by God's people to it. All right, so back in chapter 3, Micah chapter 3, verse 2. It's a place where good is hated and evil is loved. You who ate the good and loved the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You, you, you hate good, you love evil. In chapter 7, verse 2, it's a place where the godly are scarce and the sanctity of life is forgotten. Everyone's kind of devoted to their, their own benefit. So Micah chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. It's also a place where judges and rulers can be, brought, can be bought. We've already said that. Bribery was rampant. It says their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it 
together. It's a place where those closest to you can't be trusted. Look what it says in verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And man's enemies are the men of his own house. This is the environment that had been built. It was a place where nobody could be trusted, even those closest to you. Your neighbor couldn't be trusted. Your spouse couldn't be trusted. Your kids couldn't be trusted. Your extended family couldn't be trusted. Judges, police, nobody could be trusted because everybody could be bought with a price. Bribery was rampant in their culture. As I'm reading this, I'm kind of thinking uh, you know, about some of the, the comic book movies that we watch and, and how distraught, the, the, the cities are sometimes and in need of somebody who can bring justice. And that's kind of the, the premise for why superheroes are needed, right? Because the, the, the regular government is failing. The regular government is not bringing justice. It's kind of the, the picture particularly that you see in Batman, right? That, that Gotham City has just gone awry. There's nothing good in the city. And, and one individual has to kind of rise above the evil and kind of reset the table and bring justice where justice isn't being served because the police have been bought um, you know, the government has been bought, the lawyers have been bought, the, the judges, everybody's been bought, right? And evil's running rampant and somebody has to come and fix it. Um, the difference being in this story, this, the, the people that are to fix it are us. Um, we're, we're called to live differently than this. We're called to address this and to change this because going back to what it says in Micah chapter six, verses six and seven, what do we do? Do we offer these sacrifices? Do we bring... Um, rams? Do we bring calves? Do we bring our children? What is it that you want, God? Right? Give us the job description. What is it that we can do to fix this? Who do we have to pay off and how much does it cost us? It says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, though, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God tells them is to be their response. To do justice, to love kindness. Some of your translations may say to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's not rituals. He can't be bought. He desires repentance and change. Think about 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. King Saul, he's, he's not been king for very long, right? He disobeys, doesn't kill all the people, brings some things back, brings the king back, right? Samuel shows up and Samuel rebukes him and says, what are you doing? Like God told you to do things this way and you're doing them differently. And, and what does Saul do? He kind of relies upon the fact that, well, I thought I'd bring these animals back and we'd offer a bunch of sacrifices to God and have just a great worship service. And, and Samuel's like, that, that's, not what, that's, not what God, that's not what God said and that's not what God wants. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. I want you to see that this message that Micah says is consistent with what God's people have heard for years. First Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. We see the same message Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 in the New Testament. The, the Pharisees had felt very prideful about their sacrifice system, and yet they had failed in their actions. It says, woe to you, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint 
and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's the same themes that we see here in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Do justice, love kindness or love mercy, and walk humbly. Be faithful to God, right? Jesus says, you failed in your justice, you failed in your mercy, you failed in your faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And he says the evil is so rampant in you, and yet you think you're okay because you're keeping these rituals. You're coming to church, you're giving money, you're doing this, you're doing that. But you're not known as people of justice and mercy, kindness, and humility. And so we're going to see kind of what that means um, and unpack that with our time remaining. So back in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we're going to focus in on this passage. All right, so number one in your notes, do justice, do right and correct wrongs that you see. That's the first thing that we want to kind of walk away from this book with. The call that we're to do justice, to do right and correct wrongs that we see. For our kids, when you see someone doing something bad to someone else, try to fix it. We're to be people who who value other people and work to do things in a right way, in a good way, bring justice to situations that we're tasked to. Number one, we're called to demonstrate right behavior in our own lives, right? So for us to be people that do justice, it starts with us being people who manage our understanding of right and wrong properly, Um, that we treat people right, we treat people fair, that we treat people with equally good intentions. It's, It's a character piece that's required before we can be people of justice, We're called to demonstrate right behavior in our own lives. And then number two, we're called to deal with wrong behavior done towards others. God wants wrongs to be rebuked. We're to work to make sure others are treated fairly, kindly, and rightly. I remember talking with um, Rob Turner before he got his most recent job, and he was looking to make a, a change. And I think this is, the story I'm about to tell you, I think is a tremendous testimony to the character of Rob. Um, and we're so grateful and thankful to have him part of our church. He, he's talking to me about this job opportunity and, and, and the potential of, of taking this job and, and what his boss is, is kind of communicating to him or potential boss is kind of communicating to him because he's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not really qualified for this job necessarily. I don't necessarily meet the, the minimum qualifications for this job. And I remember what he told me, uh, and, he, and he certainly didn't tell me this in a prideful way, um, but he told me, he said, the response from the, the person that was interviewing him, it was somebody that he'd worked with previously or known previously, and she basically said, your character is why I want you. Like, we can figure out the training piece, the qualification piece. We can get all that stuff for you. The reason that I want you in this position is because it's a position where justice needs to be served, where wrongs need to be righted, and, and there's corruption that needs to be fixed, and, and you're the guy for the job. I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous that's a tremendous testimony for somebody to say that about you, for somebody to say, here's, here's why I want you, because you're the type of individual that I believe Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is describing, somebody who does justice, somebody who possesses the inner character, the value to say, man, I'm going to handle things in a right way. I'm going to deal with evil personally. I'm going to be the type of person who is obedient to the law, someone who is seeking to demonstrate right behavior in my own life, and then I'm going to be passionate and diligent to deal with wrong behavior that's being done towards others. Right? It's somebody who recognizes that to do justice means taking responsibility to both be the right type of individual and then also being the individual who steps in when things aren't being done right. 
when things aren't being done right. right? It's not enough to just be the individual who says, I don't gossip, I don't slander others, I just kind of sit back and do my business at work, and, and you know, the other drama just kind of plays itself out, but I try to stay clear from that. Right? Someone who does justice says, you know what, I'm not going to allow my coworker to be taught, taught, talked about like this. I'm not going to allow my boss to be slandered like this, right? It's somebody who steps in and says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be okay with that. Like, we're not going to have that type of culture and environment on my watch, right? It's, 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 <laughs> it's putting on the bat suit and saying, like, I'm going to be someone of change to a corrupt environment that I find myself in. This, this, this message of judgment would have been great news to those who had been oppressed. But the judgment is coming upon people who should have fixed this themselves long before this. These oppressed, poor individuals who were, who were battling to stay afloat, their situation should have been resolved from, from a different angle previously to God's judgment having to come upon them. We're called to demonstrate right behavior in our own lives. We're called to deal with wrong behavior done towards others. Number two, love kindness. Or again, some of your translations say love mercy. It means that we're to treat others based on image, not behavior. We treat people based on their image and not their behavior because too oftentimes we're, we're prone to, to maybe be very justice mindset as far as like people should get what they deserve, particularly those who have done us wrong. But if we're gonna image God well, it means seeing other people through the fact that they, they have been created in his image and possess value and deserve mercy at times, not because their behavior warrants it, but because their image warrants it. That the way we treat others is based off their image and not their behavior. We're called to, number one, balance justice with mercy. Because these two things, if you're not careful, feel like they're at odds with each other, right? Justice and mercy. Justice is doing what's right and, and dealing with evil, and yet mercy seemingly lets people off the hook, right? Doesn't deal with the evil, Um but we're called to balance these two things together. We're to, we're to demonstrate mercy out of a spirit of love because it tells us to love kindness, to love mercy, which means also that we don't, we don't overlook the justice need here. But we're merciful towards those, particularly in ways that mercy has been shown to us. Because this is consistent with Jesus' message, right? That when we've been forgiven much, we have such a responsibility to forgive others. But I don't know about you. Oftentimes my tendency is to be very hard towards others in ways that I'm very weak myself, right? Things that, that I'm not very good at, I seem to have like really high standards for others in some of those areas. Um, I see this oftentimes with um, our teachers because I get the dynamic of the teachers are kind of like my students and then my teachers have their own students underneath them, right? Um, and oftentimes I've got teachers who are very, uh, very stringent and very uh, passionate about student punctuality, right? Like, I want my students in my class on time. If they're one minute late, I'm writing them up. Here's the demerit sheet. Person came in two minutes late, and they've done that the last three days. And I usually get those, and I usually have a kind of a smirk and a chuckle as I read through it, because I'm thinking, like, I mean, you ain't been, to time, you ain't been at work on time at all this week, right? You come in five, ten minutes late. But the difference is, is that if you were to ask the teacher about it, right, it's like, you have no idea how hard it is to get four kids ready in the morning and get them here on time, right? It is so difficult, right? You're the parent, like you're the one in charge. You're the one calling the shots, and yet you're, you're, you're mad at the kid who comes into your class late, right? The one who doesn't drive, the one who doesn't get to tell the other siblings when it's time to leave, right? But you'll have these teachers that are just like, 
write them up, right? They're late, two minutes late. I know I was 10 minutes late this morning, but I had a good reason. This kid, absolutely no good reason, right? Like, I see myself doing that oftentimes. I'm very slow sometimes to give mercy, particularly in the areas where so much mercy is shown to me. Where so much mercy is oftentimes shown to me, I fail to give it. God tells the people here that they are to be known as people who love kindness, who love mercy, who, who balance the justice with the mercy towards those around them. Number two, we're called to deal with others in the ways that God deals with us. Because he treats us far better than we deserve. <coughs> far better than we deserve. Right? Teachers sometimes get frustrated because uh, students don't submit their work on time. Again, it's the same teachers that don't, don't respond to my emails and give me what I need on time either. <coughs> we have a responsibility to respond to people, to forgive people, to treat people kindly, particularly in the areas where we've been shown that same thing. If you look in um, chapter 6, again, at the very beginning, look how God draws upon his previous kindness towards the people of Israel. It says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case. Make sure I have it. Yeah. Uh, let's go down to verse three. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And he wants to remind the people, my expectations for you are based on the type of uh, behavior that I've shown to you. He says, remember, I'm the one that set you free from Egypt. When you were bound up in slavery to the Egyptians, I'm the one that did everything to rescue you. Then when you had this situation where Balak and Balaam are trying to partner and team up to curse Israel, if you remember the story correctly, uh, he can't. Like Balaam, Balaam tries to curse Israel and all that comes out are blessings upon Israel. God says, my, 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 my intents towards you are good. I, I'm not gonna bring curses upon you. Then he goes on to talk about this <coughs> arrangement with um, Shittim and Gilgal. This is where he allows them to cross the Jordan River, like the, the far more famous Red Sea crossing takes place at the beginning of their journey, but at the end of their journey, he splits the Jordan River in two where they can walk across as well. The significance of these two locations, one is where they break the covenant, where they're, they're rebellious and disobedient to God. And on the other side, Gilgal, it's reestablished with Joshua. Right? God says, where have I ever shown ill intent towards you? I've always had your best interest at heart. We're called to deal with others in the same way that God has dealt with us. He has shown us great mercy. How could we not show great mercy and kindness towards others? God wants his people to be restored to him, which means, you know, thinking in terms of like the, the gospel message that we present. We can't be like Jonah where we just think the people around us that are evil should get what they deserve. We would never pretend to have the same mindset as Jonah, right? We've never confessed that we feel the same way towards people like Jonah felt. But how oftentimes do we maybe look at people around us and think, well, their time's coming where God's gonna really get them and God's gonna judge them. But God's perspective is, man, I wanna see people saved. I wanna see people rescued. I want mercy to be extended to people and we get to be that instrument of mercy where we bring a message both of judgment and hope 
a message of justice and forgiveness. We're to be people who do justice, people who love kindness. And then number three, people who walk humbly. Keep yourself in perspective in light of God's glory. Walk humbly. For our kids, if we think about how great God is, we will remain humble. Number one, we're called to be like God, but he is so unlike us in some of the ways that that we need him to be unlike us. We're called to be like him, but Micah draws upon uh, how unlike God is from everybody else and how we can be thankful for that. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, and it's kind of a wordplay on Micah's name because Micah's name is an abbreviation in the Hebrew of the phrase, who is like Yahweh? And he kind of poses that question here in verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He has compassion on us, casts away our sins, shows faithfulness. These are all things that when we, when we ponder them and when we think about them and we meditate on them, we ought to be these things to other people too, even if it's nowhere near how God is. Right? I wrote down uh, in my notes, um, well, let, me, let me go to number two and then I'll tell you. We're called to reflect on him, which keeps us humble. But as we try to be like him and try to image him well, we've been talking about that for weeks now, Um, we ought to seek to be people who are known by some of our favorite things about God, right? So let's just, just, just pause for a second and think, what are some of the things that when you think about God, if you were to describe God to somebody, what is God like, right? All of us would probably start with different things that are gonna come to mind because they're things that resonate with us for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and, And it probably depends on what season of life we're in at the time, right? But we may start to think about, uh, God's promises and his faithfulness to keep those promises, right? God's love and mercy and forgiveness. But whatever starts to come to our mind about who God is, those are the type of things that we should be known for as well with the people that we come in and, and, and interact with, right? If, if we're thinking about God who is a God of faithfulness to his promises, how much more should we be striving to be people who are truthful and faithful to the things that we say we're gonna do as well? Right? God calls us to be people of kindness and mercy and forgiveness because God is a great God of kindness and mercy and forgiveness. Right? He has dealt with us in this way. We should be striving to deal with others in that way too. We walk humbly by making his greatness known and not our own. We walk humbly by making his greatness known and not our own. We reflect his character through the justice and the kindness that we seek to show others. Man, this is kind of our job description. This is the the expectations that God has for us. What are we supposed to be doing? And it's not this specific thing that tells us do this and go here and do that type of a job description, right? It's, It's basically saying as you go, as you work, as you multiply, as you marry, as you have kids, as you change jobs, as you relocate to different cities, you're to be a type of person who brings to that environment, brings to that culture justice and mercy and humility. These are things that don't come natural to us, right? These aren't things that we can buy with a sacrifice. These aren't things that we can go down to the convenience store. You can't do a, um, a click list at Kroger and go pick this type of stuff up, right? Like this, this requires heart change in us. 
This is the Holy Spirit who comes in and, and radically changes us so that we can be these type of people. Um, and so when we humble ourselves, God does this type of work in us and creates us uh, to be these type of people, people that we were created to be before, before that image went awry when sin entered into the world. And that's kind of the message that we see here in the book of Micah. Judgment's coming because of the abuse that they've had in their culture towards others, uh, particularly in this section uh, towards the poor, how they've been oppressed and how God's laws have been neglected, God's laws that were set up to protect the poor, they've disregarded it, and now the poor are being oppressed because of it. And God says, I'm gonna judge you for it. But he brings this hope uh, that the remnant would be saved, the Messiah is gonna come, restoration's gonna happen, the people of Israel are gonna be redeemed, right? Thankfully, we're grafted into that group of people now, and we get that same hope as well. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the message that is given to us is that we work towards these things now, uh, that we seek to bring these things to our culture and environment now, that we're known as people of justice, kindness, and humility. Let's pray together, and then we'll have some time to discuss this for the next few minutes in our discussion groups. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the goodness that we see of who you are in the book of Micah, that despite our unfaithfulness, despite our sin, despite our rebellion at times, God, um, you continue to keep your promises to us, and, and you've certainly dealt with us in a kind manner in the past. You have shown mercy and love towards us. Um, God, you've always demonstrated good intent, and we thank you and praise you for that. God, we thank you that there is no God like you. There is no human being like you that shows the type of um, pardoning towards sin and iniquity, who, who relents from anger, who shows mercy, but who also deals justly when justice is needed. Um, God, we're thankful that we don't have to worry about you being bought off by somebody else and uh, the intentions that you have towards us changing uh, because somebody has manipulated you. Um, even in a society now where we see corruption at times and in our government, in our law enforcement, um, where we see people who aren't uh, doing things um, that, are, that are good and right and instead are being influenced by evil. Um, God, we're thankful that you remain in control of all of it. Even as we approach this upcoming election season, God, we're thankful and grateful that you're the one who appoints authorities. You're the one who appoints kings and emperors and rulers. And that they're used for your purposes. And so we praise you and thank you that we have that hope this morning. We have that encouragement this morning. Um, but God, help us to respond appropriately to this message. God, we don't want to be people who simply ask, how much more do I need to give to the church or how many Sundays do I have to attend to show my appreciation? God, help us to be the type of people who desire to be like you, desire to image you well to others. And God, you've revealed your character. You're a God of justice. You're a God of kindness and mercy. And you're a God of glory, which demands our humility. And so God, I pray that we would be the type of people who who seek to bring justice to situations, who seek to show mercy when it's appropriate. God, that we would keep ourselves in check, knowing that if we can point people to you, if we can make much of you, then we are faithfully walking in humility like you've called us to. So God, give us opportunity to do that and help us to respond appropriately. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.